Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. If you will, grab your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 40, the last chapter in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40. We're going to continue our series through uh, the book of Exodus. It's this week and next week, and we're done. We've made it through Exodus this year, and so kudos to you. I know it's a long, it's a long journey to get through a book of the Bible, particularly one like that, and so I'm excited for what God has done and what he's taught us and shown us. What we're gonna look at this morning in Exodus 40, just the first 33 verses, we'll finish chapter 40, we'll finish the book of Exodus next week. But sometimes, if you're like me, you thought Exodus was about the Red Sea. And you thought the Exodus was about that. It was about Egypt, and it was about the Red Sea and the plagues, and that's what you thought it was about. And then you started to realize there's, there's more than that in this book. Ultimately, what the book of Exodus is about is about God being with his people. That's what the book of Exodus is about. It's about God setting people free from slavery to some other master and bringing them into fellowship with him. And ultimately, he's doing that through the tabernacle. So we're gonna study that this morning. On the screen will be the scriptures I'm gonna use this morning. It's a lot of them. Uh, But I'm gonna move quick, but it's a lot of them. And here's what I want want us to see today. I want us to see that what we've studied in Exodus, what we continue to study in Exodus, is not just about Exodus. This is about God. And because it's about God, it's everywhere in the Bible. And Exodus itself is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. So it's powerfully packed in here, what God is doing and what he has done. So I don't know how many of you are movie people. How many of you are movie people? Movie people here? How many of you watch the same movie over and over and over again? You, you crazy people. I don't get it. I, I, honestly, I love you. I don't get it at all. We have a movie at our house. It's, it's the video of our wedding. And Meredith is always like, let's just sit down and watch the, let's just watch the video of our wedding. And I'm like, girl, I was there. Like, I know. I know how it went. I know the script. I know all of it. Like, I know. I know the climax. I know all of it. I know all, how it all happened. I, I can't sit and watch movies over and over again unless they're comedies and I can watch them and just laugh until I cry that uh, I can do that. But you movie people... Uh, some of you movie people, you know more about particular movies than I know about my kids. You just do. You know more about movies. You know more about characters and character arc, and you find Easter eggs everywhere uh, in movies. Uh, how many of you are Lord of the Rings fans? You Lord of the Rings people? All right. Well, I, I read the book in high school, and then I fell asleep in college watching the movie. I was like, I probably won't do that again. A few weeks ago, Meredith and I sat down, and we watched the full seven and a half hours of the first movie of uh, Lord of the Rings. Man. That's a, that's a lot of movie. That's a whole lot of movie. Uh, but I'm watching it, and uh, <laughs> neither of us know what's going on. We don't know. We're like, man, those people are short. What's happening? And so we're watching it, uh, and I've had this moment of like, man, I could really use someone who knows what's going on to be here with me. That would be, that'd be really, really helpful in this moment. I don't know if you're like this in your relationship, um, but Meredith and I will sit down on the couch to watch a movie, or we'll go watch a movie and it's not long before she's asleep. Anybody else have a sleeping partner? You, your, your spouse just falls asleep? Yeah. So 30 minutes later, she'll wake up, and then the questions are, well, who's that guy? <laughs> Baby, that, that was a long time. I don't know. That was a long time ago. It's worse than we're watching like a Netflix series because we're episodes in at that point. And I'm like, oh, that was four episodes ago, so it's going to take me a while to catch you up. 
but you movie people, like you see things in a movie that most to the common eye, you don't see. No, the rest of us don't see. And then what happens? Maybe you've done this. You've watched a movie with somebody who's watched a movie multiple times and they know what's coming. And so they see things in the future that you don't see. And they're like, oh, get ready, it's coming. Here comes the good part. And if you've ever seen the movie, The Sixth Sense, I'm gonna ruin it for you because it's been that long. But The Sixth Sense, um, he's dead the whole time. So there's that for you. Uh, but you watch it the first time, you're like, oh, okay, he's dead at the end. But then if you watch it again, you begin to see things that you didn't see before because now you know what you didn't know and now you see it completely differently. How many sports people? Are you sports people? Any sports people here? All right, so there are ways in which sports people watch sports that are different than the ways their spouses watch sports for the most part, right? Uh, and the fact that you actually watch sports and your spouse puts up with it. But there are things that you see. If you've played a sport and you're watching a sport, you see things that other people wouldn't necessarily see. I mean, Tony Romo is a prime example of this. He just, he sees the play about to happen before it happens because he played that sport and he sees all the in, um, intricacies that happen within that sport. What about uh, surprises? Let's talk Christmas is coming up. And so maybe, uh, maybe you've bought a, a birthday or a Christmas gift for a friend or a spouse or a child and you've hidden it in a closet somewhere. Then there are those moments where the child or the spouse, somebody makes a comment about that gift, not knowing you have that gift for them. And then you feel like your face gets all warm and hot and you start smiling like I know something that they don't know. Or maybe it's a birthday party and you're throwing a surprise birthday party for somebody and your job is to get them there, but they keep saying they can't make it that night because they've got other things going on. And because you know something they don't know, you're trying to get them there because of what's going to happen in the future. I say all that to say this. The tabernacle is just like that. If you know the story, there have been things that we've read and talked about that will blow your mind if you knew what was actually happening there. And I know it's gotten boring and we just read blueprints all service long, but there's something significant that's happening there. So what I hope to do this morning, I hope through the Holy Spirit, our eyes are open to this and we begin to see the Bible in ways we've never seen that we see scripture and we particularly see this in ways that we have never seen before. So I'm gonna read Exodus chapter 40, verses 16 through 33. Verses one through 15 are kind of repeated, 16 through 33. At the beginning of the chapter, God speaks to Moses again and he tells him, hey, this tent, this tabernacle that I've given you plans for, that you've recruited Aholiab and Bezalel to come uh, construct and put things together, now it's time. And what's beautiful about God is that now God is calling Moses to actually erect the tabernacle. He's the one that's gonna stand the tent up. Everything's been built, everything's ready, and now he's the one who gets to put the bases in place and raise the poles up. He gets to do all of it. And it's awesome what's happening here. So in the first 15 verses, God tells Moses what to do, but we're gonna pick up in verse 16 of Exodus chapter 40. This Moses did. So what God had just told him to do, Moses did. According to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Everything we've been studying for the past eight or nine chapters is coming to fruition. It's, it's the culmination of all, all of it that we've been studying. And it happens at the beginning of a new year. So now it's year two of the wilderness journey. What they don't know is that there's 39 more years coming. But what's happening now is a new year. It's a new season. For the first time in the history of the Hebrews, there will be a place in which God dwells. 
The tabernacle was erected. Verse 18, Moses erected the tabernacle, and here's how he did it. He laid its bases, set up its frames, and put in its poles, and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony, the Ten Commandments, and put it into the ark, the ark of the covenant, and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. So that's two times we've read that phrase. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. Three. And he put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. That's four. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and he burnt fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. That's five. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses, that's six. And he set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, put water in it for washing with which, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet when they went to the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And that is seven. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. He did it. He finished the work that God had called him to. And that's significant in and of itself, but it's bigger than that, right? There are, throughout the story of scripture, there have been moments in Easter eggs that have led us to this moment and will lead us through this moment. What's happening now in Exodus 40 is bigger than Exodus 40. And maybe you felt something like that in your life before, like what's happening right now? It's bigger than me. It's bigger than what's happening. Maybe it's your wedding day when you felt like this is a significant thing that's happening. Maybe it was the birth of a child. This is, this is bigger than the moment. There's something bigger here. This is what's happening here in Exodus 40. So let me, let's just give us a visual so we can understand. Here's a picture of the tabernacle, not a picture, but here's the layout of the tabernacle to help us see this is bigger than it has been. We've covered some of this before, and there are things that are significant. First is the orientation of the tabernacle. We read about the north and the south, the table on the north side, the lampstand on the south side, because what it gives us is orientation of the tabernacle. So the outside uh, is the fence. It's just, it's the curtain, basically. So it's, it's all white linen. Everything on the outside of the tabernacle is just white linen in the desert. It's just, it's not beautiful. It's not great to look at. From all three sides, from those three sides, it's nothing much to look at. But then you've got this gate on the eastern side. It's a fabric gate. It's just a door, but it's beautiful. This is the scarlet and blue and purple yarn with the gold mixed into it. That's what's happening there. You step into that eastern gate and you come face to face with the bronze altar. In the courtyard where everybody is mingling, there's animals there. The bronze altar is the altar of sacrifice, the altar of repentance. It's bronze. It's the first thing you see when you walk in. Beyond that is what's called the bronze basin. In numbers, that is called the sea, S-E-A, the sea. It's all bronze. Bronze represents judgment. That's all happening in the courtyard. You go through the next veil, the next gate, or the next curtain, and that takes you into the holy place. Now, only the priests are allowed in the holy place. And they're only allowed in there once they sacrifice and then wash in the bronze basin. 
Blood uh, covers sins, and then they are washed from that cleansing to step into the holy place. And in the holy place is the lampstand, which is lit with uh, oil. They're oil lamps that have been lit. You've got the table of showbread. The showbread is for the priests after being sacrificed, they're offered to God. And then you've got the altar of incense. It's a golden altar of incense that's meant to represent the prayers of the people going up to God. And that's situated against another veil. When the Bible speaks of a veil, this is what it's speaking of. This other curtain that takes them from the courtyard to the holy place and now into the holy of holies but only the high priest can get into the Holy of Holies. And that's only once a year on the Day of Atonement. After he has gone through a whole ritual of cleansing, he can step into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is. And inside the Ark of the Covenant is the tablets, the Ten Commandments. On top of the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat with two cherubims, two angels facing themselves covering it. On this veil that separates the holy place from the Holy of Holies, we read in Exodus, is another uh, picture of cherubim, angels, standing there uh, to guard the holy of holies. So this is the pattern that God gave to Moses for the tabernacle. So here it is. Here's what's important for us. This next slide is just just the, the layout of it. There's three particular places we're concerned with. The courtyard, which is where all Jews were able to come in. It's where sacrifices were offered. But then from there, you get a little more sacred as you move into. You got the holy place where only the priests could be after washing. And then you've got the holy of holies where uh, the high priest could go once a year. But this is a pattern that God has given to uh, Moses to lay out here. But what's interesting is that this isn't the first time we've had this pattern. You can turn there, it'll be on the screen if you want to. Genesis chapter three, God creates the garden of Eden and everything is as it should be. Adam and Eve fall into sin and because of their sin, their rebellion, God actually kicks them out of the garden of Eden, the garden in Eden, he he kicks them out. But Genesis chapter three, verse 24, we read that God drove out the man and at the east of the garden, where? The east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword fire that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The tree of life is situated in the midst or the middle of the garden. So let's look at that tabernacle layout again so you see what we're we're looking at, these three areas. But what we read in Genesis one through three is that the garden is laid out exactly the same way. And here's how the garden is laid out. You know, the garden is in a place called Eden. The garden isn't called Eden. Eden is the region. The garden is in a place called Eden. Garden is there. And it is situated much like the tabernacle is, where the way into Eden is the east. The gate, the door is on the east. Then you've got the garden, again, from the east. So in Eden would have been humanity. The garden is where Adam and Eve are. And we'll look more at this in a second. Adam and Eve biblically qualify as priests. And then from there is the tree of life, which is where the presence of God is. If you were paying attention, Genesis chapter three, there are cherubim guarding the tree of life. In the tabernacle, there are cherubim on the veil guarding the holy of holies. But when you walk into the tabernacle, the first thing you see is an altar. And what do you use to burn animals on an altar? You use flames and fire. So from the gate of the tabernacle, you see flames back and forth and you would see the cherubim on the curtains from the east side. As if God is saying there's something particularly important about what's happening here. In Genesis chapter two, verse 15, God creates man and woman. 
And in verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now this phrase, work and keep, these two words are only used together throughout the rest of the Bible in reference to priests, in reference to holy Levitical priests. Numbers chapter three, uh, verse seven and eight, we get the uh, job description of the priest. They shall keep guard over him and the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister, you can circle that word, at the tabernacle. They shall guard, you can circle that word, all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard, there it is again, over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. That word guard in Numbers three is the same word for keep in Genesis chapter two. That word minister is the same Hebrew word as the word work back in Genesis chapter two. So when we talk about the tabernacle, we talk about how it's laid out and the orientation of it and that there are priests there, what I'm trying to tell you is the pattern of the tabernacle has been laid on the tabernacle of the Garden of Eden where everything is as it should be. What God is doing in the tabernacle is that he's reinstituting his divine presence on planet Earth. What he's doing in the tabernacle is he's saying, I haven't left you or forsaken you. I'm here and I'm coming back. And so he reinstitutes the garden through the tabernacle. And you can see it again with the Eden layout. You see all of the same thing, the orientation and the way it takes us into his presence. But that's not the only place it happened. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 24, God had called Moses up the mountain with the elders. But he said, the people cannot come up the mountain. Exodus 24 verse one, God said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron the high priest, Nadab and Abihu priests, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. What God has just done in Exodus 24 is he's given another pattern that we can lay on top of Eden, which lays then, uh, has the tabernacle laid on top of it. And here's what he's saying at Mount Sinai. There are three areas he's saying at Mount Sinai. There's one area, the base of the mountain where the people can be, which would have been the courtyard or Eden. And then you've got a place where the elders can be, which would have been the holy place. And then you've got a place where only Moses can come and that's into the presence of God, the holy of holies, the most holy place. What I'm trying to show you is that there's something bigger happening than just some tent going up in the desert. And it's why Moses and Aholiab and Bezalel had to be so specific with what they were building because this pattern doesn't just exist for the tabernacle. This pattern exists for something greater than that. And if you thought that was great, which I can tell by your expressions, you're blown away, I get it. Uh, it gets better than that because this temple, this tabernacle would become the temple in Jerusalem, which David and Solomon would build. And that would be laid on top of the same pattern. But ultimately, in the book of Revelation, John has a vision of heaven. And in the vision of heaven, he sees a temple. Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened. The word temple uh, comes from the idea of a tabernacle, was opened, and the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple. So now John sees a vision of heaven and he sees a temple after the pattern of the tabernacle, after the pattern of Sinai, after the pattern of Eden, and in the temple in heaven, he sees, wouldn't you know it, the Ark of the Covenant. 
Then Revelation chapter eight, verse three, another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Where else have we seen a golden altar before a throne or before the mercy seat? Oh, that's right, we saw in the tabernacle this golden altar of incense. Then verse four, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So this pattern of the tabernacle is not just about the wilderness. It's about something bigger. It's about Eden. It's about Sinai and it's about heaven itself. And then Hebrews chapter four, verse 14. The author of Hebrews says that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. And so now the author of Hebrews says, no, no, it's not just about the temple and the Ark of the Covenant and a golden altar. You've got a high priest there, which is as if to say, it's just like Eden. And it's just like Sinai. And it's just like the tabernacle in the wilderness. And the author of Hebrews gets more specific in, verse, in chapter eight. He says, the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, which is the Greek transliteration of the word tabernacle, that the Lord set up, not man. The author of Hebrews is saying is that tabernacle wasn't about a tabernacle. That tabernacle is about heaven. That tabernacle is about the kingdom of God. And then he says this in verse five, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, the high priest, the altar, the veil, it's a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Which leads us to believe this. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, God took him to heaven to show him what heaven looks like. And he says, when you make the tabernacle, make it just like this. Because the tabernacle is built on the pattern of the kingdom of heaven. So when we read that Moses was obedient, he did as the Lord had commanded. When we read that Bezalel and Aholiab did everything according to the word of God, when we read that, this is why. Because it had to be this way. Bezalel and Aholiab, as they uh, put everything together, were not given free reign. It's not like God said, hey, listen, I want a tent. Do it however you want. I don't care. What God said to Moses was, I want a tent and I want this tent to reflect Eden because Eden reflects heaven and I want heaven on earth at the tabernacle. Build it how I tell you to build it. And so when Moses finishes the work in Exodus chapter 40, verse 33, what we're learning is Moses did it exactly as God commanded because there's more going on than a tent in the desert. So they did not have free reign because the tabernacle and its furniture represented in various ways heaven on earth, the glory of God being displayed on earth. So if Bezalona Holy, I would have decided, man, I don't, I don't know about bronze for this altar out here. It doesn't really look that good. Like I know God said bronze, but I'm the expert. So I'm gonna go with gold out here. We're gonna draw people in with gold. We would have missed the point completely. If they would have decided the altar of incense probably fits better somewhere else, it would be more feng shui. If they put it somewhere else, it would have ruined the entire design and the pattern of heaven. 
If they would have decided that the outer courts, the outer gates that were just, or the fence that was just white linen, man, that won't draw people in. We need it to be more beautiful than that to draw people in. And they took what was in the Holy of Holies, the gold and scarlet and blue yarn, and they put it on the outside. It would have destroyed the pattern completely. So when God tells Aholiab and Bezalel, build it how I told you to build it, he means build it how I told you to build it. And then what he's saying is you need to trust me. It's bigger than this. And so when we read that they were obedient, this is significant for us. So here's what I'd like to do now. I'd like us to take that same idea that maybe, maybe the work that God's given you and me to do is bigger than building a tent in the desert. Maybe the work God's given you to do with your kids and with your marriage and at school and at your workplace is bigger than just creating spreadsheets for a company. Maybe, just maybe, the same God who built Eden and the tabernacle after the pattern of heaven is doing something in your life and what he's asking you to do is to do it how I've commanded you to do it. And what I wanna show you today is it's not just because I said so, it's because I've got a plan bigger than what you could ever dream or imagine. And if you do this the way that I've called you to, you might just see heaven on earth. Paul to the church at Colossae in Colossians chapter three says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on heaven. Verse two, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Think what's happened for us is that we've lost sight of the eternal magnitude of the things that we do. And because of that, we aren't compelled to be obedient anymore. Because of that, we feel the free reign to change bronze into gold and white into blue, purple, and scarlet. I think what's happened is because we haven't paid attention to the holy decree and the holy commands of God, we become lackadaisical in our obedience. So biblically, there are shadows of heaven on earth. There are shadows of Jesus. There are shadows and representations, types of heaven on earth. In the church, there's two ordinances that God has given us, that Jesus ordained the church to continue. And the first is baptism. And we don't get to decide how we do baptism. Jesus told us how to do baptism. Because the way that we do baptism gives a story, gives a picture of, an, of a heavenly eternal reality. So baptism, we don't get to pick how we do it, how God has called us to baptize. That he's called us to baptize by immersing someone under the water and then bringing them up. Because the expression is you are buried in your sin and you're raised to new life. That's why we baptize the way that we baptize. We also believe that baptism is a believer's baptism. It's not meant to save, it's a picture of salvation. So if you are a follower of Jesus and you have not taken the step of baptism, you aren't following the pattern of heaven. Because the pattern of heaven declares an eternal reality on the earth. So I wanna challenge you. If you're a follower of Jesus, but you haven't followed him through the waters of baptism, you've essentially accepted a burnt offering, but you haven't been cleansed to step into the holy place. And yes, there's forgiveness and I get all of that, but I'm just saying if there's a pattern, that's a pattern. 
The second ordinance God has given the church is communion, the Lord's Supper. And there is a way in which God has called us to do this. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with broken bread that represents his body and juice or wine that represents his shed blood. There's a way in which we participate in communion that declares a heavenly reality. And I know those two things are completely strange to the world. Why would you let some random guy dunk you underwater in front of 400 people? Why would you do that? Well, I get it. But if you know the story, if you've seen the movie, then you know what's happening when that's happening. Why, why would you come in here and eat styrofoam crackers and drink old grape juice? Why would you do that? Because we know the heavenly reality of what we are doing declares something bigger than that. And that's why we participate. The gathering of the saints, we call it the local church. This is a biblical mandate. It's built on the pattern of worshiping God, which is built on the tabernacle. It's built on all of that. So when we come to gather, if we gather and there is no declaring and preaching of God's word, you haven't done it according to the pattern of heaven. If there's no community, if there's no fellowship, we haven't done it. If there's no worship, then we haven't done it right. And so that's great and that's communal and you can get, we can figure all that stuff out. But let's get real personal for a second. There's a few big shadows in scripture that point to a heavenly reality and none of them is bigger than marriage itself. And the call is not for everyone to get married, but the call is that when you are married, you understand that your marriage is bigger than a tent in the desert. Your marriage is bigger than a companion to do life with. Your, your marriage is bigger than about making kids. It's bigger than that. That marriage is work that you've been called to do to finish the work according to the commands and decrees of God. And it means, just like the tabernacle, we don't get to decide what marriage is. We don't get to decide who gets to get married. God tells us what marriage is. God tells us that marriage is between a husband and a wife. God tells us that. And God tells us it's an eternal covenant you make with each other. God tells us that. We don't get to decide that. Much like if a holy Abimbezalel changed the furniture in the tabernacle, it ruins the picture of eternity on earth. If we change the meaning of marriage, it ruins the picture of heaven on earth. This isn't about society. This isn't about laws and political parties. This is about heaven on earth. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter five that this mystery is profound, this mystery of marriage, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's what Paul says. Marriage refers to Christ and the church. It is a picture of Christ and the church. And if that is true, he continues, then wives, see that you respect your husbands, which means you don't get to decide whether or not you do. To finish the work of marriage the pattern of marriage laid on the pattern of eternity and Christ's love for his people means the wife doesn't get to decide to disrespect her husband because he's disrespectful. The flip side, Paul says, and husbands see that you love your wives as Christ loves the church. So husbands, you don't get to be selfish. When you stepped into the eternal covenant of marriage built on the pattern of eternity, you finished the work by loving your wife as Christ loved the church and you lay yourself down for her. How are we doing? If Moses finished the work and seven times it says, uh, according to the command of God, if, if he does that, if it's seven times, how are you doing? 
Or do you just view your marriage as a tent in the wilderness, as some construction in the desert? It's not. It's bigger than that. And so when your marriage reflects Christ in the church, you're declaring a heavenly reality. If that wasn't fun enough, let's talk about parenting. The Bible constantly compares a father to God or God to being a father. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you who are an earthly father know how to good gift, give good gifts, don't you think your heavenly father knows how to give things that are better? Continually referred to as the father. So let's talk to dads for a second. You don't get to decide how to raise your kids. You've stepped on into a heavenly pattern of how God parents us, and that is how we are to parent our children. And the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Not pushing their buttons, making them angry, but instead loving and caring and providing for them and nurturing them with discipline because God disciplines us as sons. So dads, if you are not disciplining your, your children because you think it's easier to not have to do that, because you're afraid of what your daughter will say to you or how she will rebel, then you are not following the pattern of heaven. And in the same way, if you are overbearing and you are pushing the buttons of your kids, leading them to anger, then you are not following the pattern of heaven. And if you've completely checked out and let mama handle parenting, you're missing it all together. There are things for us that are patterns of heaven and eternal reality on earth. Friendship and community is not just a thing that we do to feel like we have people. It's a thing that we do because God himself is Trinity. He is community. And so when we have friendship, when we have community, it reflects an eternal reality on earth. The friends that you have, the way that you build each other up in community reflects something about heaven. The last one I'll talk about this morning is forgiveness. We are to forgive others as God has forgiven us. And when we withhold forgiveness, we are withholding heaven from earth. When we withhold forgiveness, we are uh, neglecting the pattern of heaven and instead taking the pattern of earth, which is bitterness and selfishness and malice and gossip. But you know that when you forgive someone, heaven breaks into earth. When you forgive someone based on the pattern of forgiveness laid out by God through his son, Jesus, you understand it's not just a tent in the desert, but it's an eternal reality making its way to earth. Students, the way that you treat your teachers and your classmates. Boys, the way that you treat girls in your class, the ways that you talk about people, the ways that you uh, treat coaches, it's an eternal reality making its way to earth. This is what we're reading here in Exodus chapter 40. This is a pattern God's given to us. It's even better. In Exodus chapter seven, Moses is standing before Pharaoh and in verse 16, God tells Moses to say to Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. This word serve is the same word from Genesis chapter two, verse 15, to work the garden. So what God is saying is, Moses, yeah, I want you to set your people free, but here's why. Because I wanna make them a priesthood in the wilderness. 
I want them to worship me in their work in the wilderness. Which makes Exodus 40, verse 33, all the more powerful that Moses finished the work. That when God wanted to take the pattern of heaven and place it on earth, Eden makes sense, right? Lush green grass and fruit and trees, that makes sense. What doesn't make sense to an earthly imagination is the desert. Of all the places that God wants to bring heaven on earth and he chooses a desert. Well, if you understood the significance that Moses finished the work, you would get it. And we do get it because to understand Exodus 40, 33, you have to understand the first 39 chapters of the book of Exodus. What did Moses finish? Well, he finished the work of a sovereign God who back in Exodus chapter one brought a Pharaoh into Egypt. A new Pharaoh who wanted, or a Pharaoh who wanted to kill young Hebrew boys. He finished the work of a sovereign God who had a Moses born at such a time as this and then placed in the Nile River by her, his mother, only then to be uh, taken in by Pharaoh's daughter herself. He finished the work of a sovereign God who, who saw all those pieces and had Moses, born Hebrew, raised by his mother in Pharaoh's courts that he might see Hebrews from the eyes of the Egyptians and grow the passion for his people. He finished the work of a man who, compelled by anger, murdered a man in Egypt. He finished the work of a murderer who ran from that work in Egypt to the wilderness where he would work for 40 years on the backside of a mountain for his father-in-law as a shepherd because God was making him a shepherd of his people. Moses finished the work. Moses finished the work of coming back into Egypt, the place of his sin, the place of his shame and guilt, to face it head on to be berated and mocked by his very people. Moses finished the work. Moses finished the work by, um, subject, by working with God to subject Egypt to 10 plagues. At the end of each one, Pharaoh relenting and disappointing and discouraging and frustrating Moses. And yet he finished the work. Moses finished the work of leading his people out of Egypt into their backs against the Red Sea. And he finished the work of leading his people through the parted waters of the Red Sea and into the wilderness where they would feast on manna from heaven. Moses finished the work. Not perfect, but he finished the work that God had called him to. So I don't know where you find yourself today, but I do know this. I do know if you're a follower of Jesus, he's given you work to do. And your work is not up to you. Your work is up to the pattern of heaven. And you might say, well, I'm unqualified, so did Moses. You might say, yeah, but I've really screwed up. Yes, yeah, so did Moses. And you might say, yeah, but they'll never follow me. Yes, yeah, so did Moses. Moses finished the work. As Brandon comes up, I just wanna take us to 2 Corinthians chapter four. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth about something similar. And he says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Then verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are 
eternal. So here's my hope and prayer for us today. That you would stop seeing your work as a tent in the desert and begin seeing the eternal perspective of the work God's called you to do. Like I wonder how many of us have grown lazy and selfish in our marriage because we've built a theology of marriage from this is us instead of the Bible. I wonder how many of us have grown lazy in the way that we love our wife because we've neglected the eternal perspective that the way you love your wife speaks to your wife about the way God loves her and the way, and you speak to the world about the way that God loves his people. I wonder if the wives, I wonder if you've grown weary in respecting your husband because you've lost the eternal perspective of what it is we're doing in raising our kids and filling out spreadsheets and teaching fourth graders in writing research papers and selling insurance. You've been given work to do and that work has been laid on a heavenly pattern speaking to heavenly eternal realities. And my prayer this morning is that we would look to things not that are seen, but that are unseen. So at the end of the day, like Moses, we could finish the work. Do you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning as we process and wrestle through what God's given us today? If I know our church like I think I do, I think we've got a whole lot of starters in our church. People who start with good intentions because we're human. But I think humanity as a whole, we don't have a whole lot of finishers. Because when the details become overwhelming or the heat of the wilderness becomes too powerful, we give up on the eternal calling to finish the work. And I just wonder by means of confession, maybe you would raise your hand and say, yeah, that's me. I've gotten lazy and I need to get back to finishing the work. Would you raise your hand and say, I've lost the eternal perspective of what I'm doing and I wanna finish the work. Yeah, me too. beauty of the gospel is the beauty of the tabernacle. The beauty of the death of Jesus, that the veil has been torn and we have open access to the restorer and redeemer of all things. A God who knew what he was getting when he, when he called you to follow him. He knows. And so we run to him asking for strength and perspective to finish the work. Maybe this morning, you need to be able to see your life from a heavenly perspective. The way that your life has been ordained has led you to a point such as this, that you might know Jesus. And you being here today, on this day of all days, maybe you came because your preschooler was singing, but you're actually here because God called you here to hear this, that he loves you and he is for you. And he has patterned your life to lead you here to find that you are not that far from him if you would turn. That God loves you so much he gave his son to die to pay the penalty for your sin that you could never pay on your own. He's given you a way to be in relationship with him, which is what your heart has been longing for. If you would just admit that you're a sinner in need of a savior, you believe that he is that savior. 
and you would confess with your mouth in your life that he is Lord. You would walk as a son or a daughter of his today. God, you are bigger than we thought you were. And while there are times that we only see our lives as tents in the desert, you continually point us to scripture to remind us that it's bigger than that. So would you forgive us for the times that we've grown lazy in the work you've called us to do? Forgive us for taking our eyes off of eternity and fixing our eyes on the earth, the ways that we've looked to the seen rather than the unseen. So Father, as children of yours, you've led us beyond the pale, bland courtyard in through the torn veil to the beauty of your glory in the Holy of Holies. So fix our eyes there that we might see how great you are and see our days in light of that. Make us a people who finish the work. In Jesus' name, amen.